Well, as you who've been with us know, we are continuing in attempting to answer various questions that the church has submitted in writing regarding the events and the realities connected with eschatology, the study of last things, especially the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we again approach the text of the passages this morning that are pertinent to our questions, we come with a sense of uh, fear and inadequacy and trusting that you are praying along with us that the Lord will steer us clear of the various pitfalls that have been uh, <clears throat> fallen into in history and give us understanding of his word, especially the kind of understanding that will make us live in the light of it. We're not interested in scratching our curiosity or scratching the itch of intellect, intellectualism, but in getting answers to questions that will help us live right. And if that's not the goal, then we're not biblical and Christian in our goals. But this morning, what I want to do is take up the very difficult problem of the Antichrist. And here's how I'm going to do it. Last question that we dealt with last week regarded the beast or the beasts in Revelation 13. And we stated that it's a difficult section of the scripture. Let me read to you what William Hendrickson, something of a scholar, has said in his commentary on the book of Revelation entitled More Than Conquerors, which, by the way, I highly recommend to you. Tremendous help in organizing the book of Revelation in simple and great sweeping principles that will help you learn to study it. Uh, one of the best I know about, and I do happen to agree with the main theme of his organizing principle, the spiraling or increasing recapitulation view. In other words, that the whole book of the Revelation is written in seven different parts or in several different parts, and each part deals with the same period of history over and over again, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, from different viewpoints, from different angles and aspects and facets, and it's a spiraling upward. As you go back over the scene, again, you'll see it from a, an increasingly emphatic point of view, and until you come to the last section of the book, which we're going to look at somewhat, I think, this morning, or at least next week, uh, chapter 19, 20, and 21, which brings everything together under the great cosmic uh, salvation that will consummate the purposes of Christ for the ages. But here's what Hendrickson says about that last section of chapter 13, which deals with the beast from the sea, uh, uh, the beast of the, uh, what of uh, the second beast, the false prophet. He says, this is perhaps the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Revelation. The main ideas are clear. The details are obscure. We emphasize that in the explanation of the details, certainty is wholly lacking. Well, I take comfort uh, in that comment. And I think anyone who absolutely with dogmatic certainty states that he knows what 666 means need some humility. We need to be very careful that we not try to be specific about something uh, uh, concerning which multitudes of godly scholars have erred for 2,000 years. We are not the first generation of the brilliant. And the fact that we seem to think we are proves we're not. 
we be, need to be humble and careful. But let me summarize William Hendrickson's view, which I think is as sound as any that I've read regarding this beast, the second beast, and this whole picture of the image. He sums it up this way. He calls this first beast the anti-Christian world government. All the expressions of world rule in this passing age which stands against Christ. And then the second beast which performs wonders and signs and deceives and causes all the world to worship the first beast and his image. He equates with anti-Christian world religion and or philosophy. All the false philosophy and prophetic utterances that would be designed to deceive man away from Christ. There's the world rule constituted in the various expressions of anti-Christian government that have been here from the beginning and are still here. And then there's the world uh, false prophet representing all the religion and all the philosophy that leads men away from Christ and usually, if not always, is working in concert with the world rulers. It never contradicts them. It always it gets along because the same Lord is over both. That they both come from the devil. And the devil's purpose is to lead men from Christ. And so he uses the threats and the power of the world government that has the economy in its hand, that has persecution power in its hand, to discourage uh, potential saints from following through and enduring to the end with Christ. Now, if that's not a central theme in the book of Revelation, I don't know what is. The churches are under persecution. They're going to be troubled by the authorities constituted in the person of the Roman emperor. And they are threatened to draw back from their faith. And continually in the book, they are encouraged to endure to the end. They're promised rewards for doing so. And they're threatened with great wrath from Christ if they don't. The church at Ephesus is told, you have left your first love. Repent, do the first works, lest I come quickly and snuff out your candlestick. So the whole theme of the book surrounds this threat of the powers of the world. And if you remember the principle of interpreting the book of Revelation, that it was written to comfort and help the faith of existing Christians at the time, toward the end of the first century, put yourself back in the shoes of the Christians who lived when this was written. How did this world government beast who had power to persecute Christians, how did this relate to those seven churches in Asia Minor? Well, they thought immediately of the current emperor Domitian, who was even then demanding that he be worshipped and whose image was being set up in Pergamum. And the, where, where the scriptures say is the seat of Satan. Satan's throne is in Pergamum. And the church at Pergamum is warned against it. And there's something going on in the church at Pergamum. Some compromise that the Lord rebukes. But there's also some faithful ones there whom he encourages and whom he uh, stands with. And so these people are reading this book, this lengthy letter from the apostle, which is describing the persecuting powers. And it says if you do not receive the mark of the beast... He's not going to let you buy or sell. He's going to persecute you and put you to death, cut your heads off. That was the primary means of public execution in the Roman Empire at the time, beheading. And so the imagery points to the existing world government, which is a threat to the church. And if a Christian doesn't say Caesar is Lord, but rather stands by Christ as Lord, he's going to get killed or he's going to be in big trouble. Now that's the 
something about what the book of Revelation is about. Don't forget that when you look at chapter 13 and say, who's the beast? Don't forget that. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove who the beast is, but don't forget that principle. Because if you remember it, it'll save you from assuming that that chapter 13 only applies to the next five years in your personal history. No Christian has ever found any help from that, any comfort from that, any exhortation from that. It's just a secret little thing held for me to figure out in my lifetime. There's a, we're filled with that in our generation, and it's uh, hard to stomach after a while. Uh, some of us become quite nauseated by hearing the latest expert who apparently has not read much historical evidence of theology uh, but a few paperbacks and uh, wants to tell us who the beast is. And he's got to be somebody that... Uh, nobody knows except the current prophet. Well, I submit to you that's not the case. And I think Hendricks, Hendrickson has a handle on it. The first beast represents the world powers who always threaten the church. You're always under the threat of persecution if you are true to Christ. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And every government of the world is always moving in the direction not toward righteousness but in the direction toward unrighteousness. The best of governments has always tended to move away from clear-cut Christian principle toward the things of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world. And saints who do not move in that direction always stand like salt in their wounds, always are irritants in their eyes, and they wish to rid themselves of true Christians. They will tolerate all forms of religion except the one that denies the love of this world and the one that is true to true truth and the one that is exclusively biblical. Again, we were told by our president this weekend as a nation that the prayers of 280 million people had to be answered. And that's why we won the war in the Gulf. Now, you ask yourself a common sense question. Wherein were the powers of those prayers. Is he beginning to tout a new religion? A religion that says prayer itself, without regard to the one addressed in the prayer, has its own intrinsic power and worth. So that all that you need to do is just pray. It matters not whether there's a God to whom you pray, or whether you pray to the right God, or whether there's actually anybody out there to hear and answer your prayer, the power is in the praying itself. So that, as he said, no one could, there was no way that uh, those 280 million prayers were not, could not be answered. You see, the point is, he refuses to identify the God who answered them. He refuses to speak the truth that the great majority of those 280 million were not addressing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with any connection or regard to biblical religion. Why does he not want to address it that way? Why doesn't he want to call it what it is? Why is he insecure? Well, it's obvious. The direction of world government never is in the direction of biblical religion. It has enough conscience to know that you better have some sort of religious reference or you won't get elected in a country like ours. And so it gives lip service to religion. Well, that comes under the category of the false prophet. And so William Hendrickson says that second beast, the false prophet, is anti-Christian world religion or philosophy that always deceives men and provides them a convenient way to receive the mark of the beast and keep cool and not be persecuted. 
See, these things are always ways to avoid the persecution of Satan. And it works out in cooperation with the first beast. That's why the second beast makes an image to the first beast and causes the world to worship the first beast. They're in cahoots. The first, the, the first beast will persecute you if you're Christian. The second beast will convince you you don't need to be Christian. You can avoid the persecution. There's a way. In fact, the second beast can actually tell you you are a Christian and pervert the truth. We'll try to prove that. And then he suggests that the image is that link between the first and the second beast. The image of the beast is how the first and second beast are linked together. It's that principle that the false religion and false uh, prophecy and false philosophy of the world deceives the multitudes into believing they are true so they don't have to offend the first beast that will persecute them and they go off with a clear conscience. They feel good about themselves. They all prayed... Whatever it was out there that answered it, he must have been answering all of us. We see the tragedy of that is, how can both Allah, the God of the Muslim, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the God of the Jew who does not know Jesus Christ, and who never owned Christ as his son, and the God of the pantheist and the God of the Satan worshiper and the God of the Hindu and the God of all the other. How can they all be uh, working together in this thing since by definition they are exclusively mutually exclusive? But to think of that is uncomfortable. To think of that is frightening. It means that a whole lot of people have got to be wrong. And it means that it makes us look like we think we're something smart and special by claiming we have the true God. So we don't want to give that impression, so we'll go along. That's the principle and spirit of the age. But now I want to say one other thing. It is interesting to note that many talk about the beast. But in Revelation 13, there are two beasts, not one. Don't just think of one beast. There are two. There's not just one beast. And the second beast, if any is much more akin to the man of sin, which we read about in Second Thessalonians, than the first beast. I just say that in case you have studied dispensationalism to understand that much is overlooked in some of the theory uh, that the texts themselves assert. Now, this week, here's what I want to do. I want to address the next question. What is the difference between, or are they the same, the Antichrist... And the spirit of Antichrist. Did he come already? Or will he come yet in the future? In other words, the specific consideration of the Antichrist. And in order to do it, I direct your attention to 1 John, first of all, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. I am aware that some of you are visiting with us and have not been a part of lengthy series in the book of Revelation or the series on eschatology. And some of you have not been with us as we've uh, begun to answer some of these questions. I trust you'll bear with us and uh, you're welcome to take the tapes if you wish to follow through. First John chapter 2 verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. It's interesting that the word he uses to say last hour is the word eschateora, the eschaton, the eschatological hour, the last things hour. 
the hour in which all the great prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the consummation of the kingdom of Christ is upon us. We are in the period that they called the latter days in the prophets. We are in the last days. It's vital that you let your Bible dictate what your language means. It's vital that you don't limit the last days to our generation. That the Apostle John was in the last days. It is the last hour. You could not get more specific than that unless you said minute or second. But it's obvious that minute or second would imply that we know the exact moment and now it's upon us. That's not what he means. But he says hour so as to lay upon our consciences the imminence and the urgency of the coming of Christ. To consummate the ages. This is the last hour. That's the language. Escate. Hour. And as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now have there arisen many Antichrists. Whereby we know that it is the last hour. This is why we know it's the last hour. Not just one, but many. Now, what is he saying? Is the Apostle John saying, now there still is another one that is not any of these that's still the Antichrist, but there's some other guys around that are sort of like the Antichrist and therefore we know it's the... No, that's not what he's saying. He's not changing the terminology. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. I tell you, there's more than one Antichrist. There are many and they're already here and by that we know that this is the last hour. He's not saying that these have come, but it's not the last hour yet, because until the big one comes, it can't be the last hour. He's saying these being here mean it is the last hour. He's making no distinction, in my, if I read this right, between the one and the many antichrists. You've heard that antichrist coming. He's here. But he's here in many antichrists. Now, you say, well, I'm not sure I'm convinced. And I know why you're not. If you've ever read the other uh, theories, the most recent theories, you, uh, it, your, your brain is locked into much of that. I understand that. I read it. I look at it. I look at my Greek text. I say, this can't mean anything. And then something in my prejudice keeps pulling back, saying, watch out. You're going against everything you've been taught as you grew up. Verse 22. Who is the liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, some make much of verse 18 in which the word Antichrist does not have the definite article. The little Greek article, ho, is not there, which is equivalent roughly to our English word, the, the definite article, the Antichrist. It's not in verse 18. It's simply Antichrist. Now, there's a reason in my view. My view is that he is so known in his attributes that there's no need for the definite article to designate him. He has his own title, Antichrist. Just like you don't say the Dean Allen. You, you, call, you don't say the Jeff Schoenberg. You say Jeff. You don't, have, you don't have to say the. Now, you might say, are you the one and only? And that designates him. But when you address a person, you call him by his name. You don't put the definite article. This is the one. He doesn't need the definite article, but look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. And in this one, he puts the definite article. Even he that denies the Father and the Son. He's, he's, he's describing 
the chief central theological attribute of the Antichrist. Who is he? What is he? You will recognize him because he denies effectively that Jesus is Messiah. Now you tell me if in history you have found that person. Yeah. You have found him all over the place. There are many antichrists now in John's day already denying that Jesus was the anointed Messiah, the only way, truth, and life to God. Then turn to chapter 4, verse 3. Now the reason I'm doing this is there are only four references in the entire Bible to the name Antichrist. And they're all in John's epistles. In 1 John 2.18 and 2.22 and now in chapter 4 verse 3. Every spirit that confesses not or literally denies. It's a, it's a confession that Jesus is not something. Jesus is not of God. And this is the and they, the translators supply the implied word spirit. The word is not in the original, but it, it's, it's the same uh, case and gender, and it refers back to the uh, spirit that confesses not Jesus. This is the spirit of Ho Antichristu, the Antichrist. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. What is the spirit of the Antichrist? The one that confesses not that Jesus, confesses not Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the one that fails to speak the name Jesus with his lips. It means the one who does not fully own Jesus as Jesus is in all that the gospel presents him to be. The one that denies any aspect of the biblical testimony regarding Christ and his saving person and work. It's Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it is coming. Now that's similar language you've heard that Antichrist is coming in verse 18. Of chapter 2. But chapter 4 verse 3. You've heard that the spirit of Antichrist is coming. And now it is in the world already. Now what do we make of that? Well the dispensationists that I grew up under made of that. That this is different from the Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is sort of the, uh, the working of, of the concepts. But the person hasn't arrived yet. And that seems plausible. It certainly, I think, could be permissible. And they would attach it to Second Thessalonians 2 that says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But he, uh, the man of sin, is not yet revealed. And when he's revealed, then certain other things will happen. And that's been the line of the argument. But I submit to you that that's really not the intent of John. John is not distinguishing here in time between the spirit of Antichrist and Antichrist. He has already told us that the Antichrist has arrived. And he said many Antichrists have arrived. And the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. He's stating them as the same thing. The spirit of Antichrist is what's being breathed out by the Antichrist. And it's already in the world. It's not just the principle. It's the person. And it's represented in many persons. Pastor, no, I know there's just one man that we're still... You may, but that's not what John is saying. And I want us to limit our study to what the text says. First, John is speaking of Antichrist. You've heard Antichrist is coming. 
But even now there are many antichrists. Not many nearly antichrists. Not many, many pre-antichrists. Many antichrists. Now. And the spirit which drives him is now already in the world. This doesn't trouble me. When Paul wrote to Second Thessalonians about 40 years earlier, maybe even further back, it is very probable that that thing had not yet happened. That now at the end of the first century has happened. Paul said Christ cannot come until he be revealed. John says we know it's the last hour because he has been revealed. Doesn't trouble me. I don't see a contradiction at all. Because the same apostle that said Jesus cannot return until Antichrist is revealed said many things that gave the implication that he expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. Until right at the last in Second Timothy when it became apparent to the apostle he was going to die. And the time of my departure is at hand. To the first Thessalonians he said, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. We shall be changed. There's this sense of imminence in his thinking about his own going to meet the Lord. And yet there's a sense of delay to the second Thessalonians when he says, first, the man of sin must be revealed. And until the man of sin is revealed, Jesus isn't going to come. But here John is saying, this is the last hour. This is the last hour. Now you let the language of the text dictate to you what you're going to assume. Now turn to Second John Verse 7, the only other reference to the word Antichrist in the Scripture. 2 John, verse 7. And it's a, it's a helpful verse because it further designates to us the nature of the Spirit and the way and the wiles of Antichrist. Verse 7. For many deceivers are gone forth into the world. Now notice the present tense. Are gone forth. It's a perfect tense. They've already gone. They're out there. And they, their work is now remaining. They've started and they're active. What are they? They are deceivers. How many are they? They're many. The world is beginning to be flooded with deceivers. Now note, what kind of deceivers? These often, in John's mind, are deceivers with reference to the Christian faith. They are deceivers who find their base of operations in the church who deny certain principles of Christian religion while purporting to be Christian. For instance, if you're familiar with the first epistle of John, you know that he that says he knows God but does not walk in fellowship with God in the light and live the way Christians live is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he deceives himself and he deceives those who listen to it. One of the tests of true Christianity is faithful adherence to every law of God and faithful adherence to the church of God and the people of God and the worship of God. And a man who claims to be a Christian and does not do those things, John says, is a liar. And the truth isn't in him. Here is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. We don't just keep them to stay on good, in good with other people. We keep them because we love to keep them. 
It gets to the motivation. Verse 6 of this epistle, 2 John. This is love, that we should walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, even as you heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The pattern of your life is to be the commandments of Christ. And then verse 7. Why do we need to write this to you? What's the purpose of reminding you that you better walk in the commandments if you claim to be a Christian? Because there are many deceivers gone out into the world. Who are going to be telling you you don't have to walk in the commandments to be a Christian? Who are going to be saying, no, no, Jesus saves by grace without reference to obedience. You don't have to do anything. Just believe in Jesus, state the word, pray the prayer, sign the ticket. You'll go to heaven no matter how you live. Many of those in the world... You see the connection in the context between commandments and deception? That's the whole point. I read on. Even they that confess not that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. What is the deceiver and the antichrist? Definite article. What is it? It is the many who have gone out into the world deceiving. At the point of the commandments and at the point of denying that Jesus is actually coming in the flesh. The Corinthian Gnostics and the Docetic Gnostics were already beginning to develop. And they're very, it's too involved to describe all that they believe. But in John's time, the Corinthians were already denying aspects of, the, of Christ. One view saw Christ as merely an appearance. Uh, he appeared to be flesh. He wasn't really. Sort of an, an emanation. He came down out of heaven and acted as though he were a man. His death wasn't really a death. His resurrection wasn't really a resurrection. It was sort of a, a, a form of teaching people principles. In fact, we hear that same theology under dis- different forms in liberalism today and modernism. But the resurrection, as one writes, is not really important whether he really physically rose from the dead, but that the concept of resurrection is what we like to grasp. It's the idea of new beginnings, like springtime. You see what they're trying to do? They want to reduce us down to poetry. And warm fuzzies. And deny the reality and the hard rock historical act of saving people from their sins. And that one of the first things to go when theology does not want to deal with sin. And that's ordinarily the root of the problem. We don't want to deal with sin. We don't want to humble ourselves and recognize before God that we're unworthy of any good thing from him or anybody. One of the first things to go out the window is the authenticity of the biblical witness regarding Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world not to give us a warm feeling about the idea of springtime. Not to rejuvenate our personal hopes in spite of our various difficulties. Not to cause the guy in the ghetto to think he still has a chance for a Cadillac. But to save sinners. And you cannot deal with Christ apart from your own sin staring you in the face. Now once you've dealt with your sin staring in your face, in the context of Christ you have a Savior. And those sins no more conquer you. Until you deal with your sins as God deals with them in the scripture, you, ha- you can't have a savior. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So many deceivers are gone into the world. This is the deceiver of the Antichrist. You see that? 
Many deceivers is the deceiver. Many deceivers is the Antichrist. How do you know them? They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is the Antichrist. This is the deceiver. What is the characteristic of the Antichrist? What is the thing that stands out about the Antichrist? What is it? What stands out about him? Somebody tell me. That, that's what he does. That's what he does theologically. But what's the feature of his character that stands out of the page? Yeah. And what does a deceiver do? How, do? how does he approach his deceptive practices? Does he come and say, now I'm Antichrist. And I want to tell you that Jesus has not come in the flesh. I'm denying the Bible. Is that the way you hear that? How does the deceiver work? He comes into the world and says, I represent Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you the truth about Jesus. I'm going to straighten you out here. You've been taught that the Bible says so and so. Let me tell you what it really says. I'm a Christian. I have just as much right to be called a Christian as the next guy. Now let me straighten you out. He deceives. And a deceiver is one who puts on a front in order to fox you. Have we not begun to hear about the wiles of the devil on Sunday evenings? Tonight we should hear more about it. And what is one of the devil's chief wiles? hope I don't try to tread too much here. It bears repeating, brother. We haven't caught on to him yet. How did he start in the garden? A subtle serpent. Speaking not as the devil, but as a beautiful and subtle creature. To this beguilable woman. And what does he say? Hath God said? Did the Bible say you shall die? He asked a little innocent sounding question. And she shouldn't have been conversing with the fellow in the first place. But she's deceived by his appearing as something beautiful and subtle. What does the scripture say about the devil? He transforms himself into an angel of light. And so do his ministers, Paul says. It's no, it's no wonder that his ministers act like the angels of God. He uses flattery. Oh, God knows you. He knows your potential, Eve. If you eat this fruit, you'll be as God. And God doesn't want you to be what you can be. Be all that you can be. That's how you get men to join the army. Oh, dear brethren, I hope you be all more than you can be. But there's the devil's subtle flattery. That's the deceiver. That's his methodology. Deception. Pull the wool over the eyes, show you half a picture, and then it's like the bait and the hook. You want to cover the tip of the hook with the wing. You've got to get your kids to put the worm all the way over the tip of the hook. No sloppy worming. You, if you leave the hook showing, you're not going to catch some fish. But when you cover the hook, all they see is the worm. Well, the devil covers the hook. He's an expert hook coverer. Well, note the characteristic of the Antichrist, deceiver. Note the identification of the Antichrist. He denies truth regarding Christ in the flesh as a real Savior who represents men to God as a man, who has a right to go before God as a man in the place of men as their priest. What does Hebrews tell us? In order for him to be a compassionate high priest, he must take our infirmities. He's familiar with our weaknesses. How? He became one with us. He took on himself the seed of Abraham, 
so that he may give help to that seed. He could not give help to that seed in saving power if he did not become flesh. And so to deny the fleshiness is to deny the salvation. Now, there are many other forms of gospel heresy that would characterize Antichrist. This was the featured one at the time of the writing of this epistle. This was the one most notable, most insidious, and most dangerous to the church when this was written. But the principle is applicable to every generation. It's taken different forms in Christian history. But essentially, it is the denial of the biblical witness of some aspect of the truth of Christ and his saving person and work. And that is what? That's the deceiver, the antichrist, the many deceivers, the many antichrists. What I'm trying to show you is that in terms of John's usage of the term, there's not one individual in history to which we can point and which we must search for to answer this description. The Antichrist is every expression among men of the denial of the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving person and work. There are many of them, and this is the one. The many constitute the one. You see it in that text. Read it again. Many deceivers are gone forth into the world. Then parenthetically he states what their characteristic theology is. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now what do we say of those many deceivers who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh? We say this is the deceiver, the Antichrist. Is that double talk? Is it many deceivers or one deceiver? Yes. The many are the one. And the one is the many. We're not to look in terms of the Antichrist, in my view, for one human being that is unique from all the rest in his deceiving. But for a principle, for a spirit, for a deceiving methodology, for a theological perversion that shows itself in many, in different points of history. And if you're not on your biblical toes, you'll be deceived. If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. I also think it's interesting, we won't turn there, but in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse regarding the Second Coming and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 69-70, the Lord Jesus never speaks of one individual. In all of that graphic prediction, he never speaks of one wicked individual coming in the future. He leaves it out completely. Why? He does speak of the love of many waxing cold, many false Christs, many false prophets, many deceivers coming into the world. And he says to the apostles, they will come. When he said it, they weren't there yet. But he predicted they would. But he didn't limit it to one individual. The prediction was there was going to be a worldwide releasing of false prophecy. And false philosophy and false religion in the person of lots of different antichrists who claim to be Christs. They are sort of like pseudo-Christs who pretend to be Christs, deliverers, saviors, but who are against Christ. And the word anti can mean either one. It can mean uh, the alter ego or it can mean the opponent. 
And I think there's something of both those in the word. It's a pretended Christ who is not really Christ and who's fighting against Christ by his pretending. And there are many of them. Jesus said there would be many of them. And because of this, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. Did we not read in Paul's epistles? The last days, what shall happen? There'll be perilous times. Why will there be perilous times? He describes it because men will follow the following characteristics. They will be hateful, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And he goes down this long list. And then he says a critical thing. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 3. He says to Timothy, having a form of godliness. Meaning they will have a ritual of religion in place where you look at it and it looks to be Christian, godly. It has a testimony that it's God. It has a form, a theology, a dogma. It has ritual in its worship. It has all the marks externally of true religion, a form of godliness. But having denied the power thereof, this form is devoid of God. Though it is a form of godliness, there's no God in it. There's no power. The true power of changing religion is not there. So, though you see the external ritual, you know there's something missing and empty in it. You don't meet God when you're there. Unless he, in great mercy, singles you out and sneaks in and gets you out before the damage is done. Now, that's a description of the last days. Are we waiting for that to happen? Brethren, I say to you, and this I say this with more confidence, perhaps, than I'm able to say anything other than that Jesus is coming again. This theology that thinks that has not happened yet is already deceived by it. It's a masterstroke of the enemy to have the Christian church still waiting for the great deceiver. That's one of the soundest evidence that he's already here. That we're not bothered yet. Haven't you noticed recently? Haven't you noticed in reading your church history books? That the vast host of Christendom has long since denied the power of true religion. Lives don't get changed. The transforming power of a saving Savior is not there. The uniqueness of Christ, highly exalted, is missing in their preaching. The worship of a sovereign God is alien and even offensive to many. Obedience as a pattern of Christian living is not even referred to, much less believed or required. That is the rule rather than the exception. In Christendom today. You know that I haven't said that there are only two true churches in the world. I haven't said that, did I? And we're one of them. I didn't say that. I don't believe that. Nor did I say there are only 15 of them. I'm not starting a cult. I don't want to be a part of one. I'm not saying we're the only ones and our few friends. I did not say Reformed Baptists are the only ones that hold truth and preach truth. I did not say that, nor do I believe that. Don't you say that. And don't say we said that. But I did say, and I believe, that the vast majority of Christendom 
has left the faith. May I humbly say, with respect and with affection for my Catholic friends, for many of you have been and some of you may still be in the Roman Catholic Church, the leading Christian, quote-unquote, denomination in America is the Roman Catholic Church. More adherence to that than any other professing Christian group. That church, by formal definition, denies the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ as enough to save anybody. That church, in its official theology, believes that Mary is not only preferable but necessary in the process of saving sinners and answering their prayers. This current pope, who has done much right, and I commend him for his bold stand against abortion in Poland, still has stated and is obviously acting out his purpose to make Mary worship a revived thing in the church. The Catholic Church, in its mass, believes that it is re-sacrificing in what it calls the bloodless sacrifice, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and feeding the transformed, miraculously transformed, flesh and blood of Christ to the people and the elements. And without that eating, literal, and drinking, there's no salvation. Now, brethren.